Art of the Cut is brought to you by Evercast. Evercast is the first real-time collaboration platform built for creatives by creatives. With video conferencing and HD live streaming in one web-based platform. Stay tuned for a special offer later in the show. Today I'm talking with Robert Grigsby Wilson, editor of The 40-Year-Old Version, written, directed, and starring Rada Blank, and streaming on Netflix. Robert was also editor on the films Goldie and Lost Bayou. He was an additional editor on Miss Juneteenth and Lost Transmissions, and the VFX editor on The Lighthouse. He's also been an assistant editor on Gemini Man, American Made, and Captain Fantastic, and on TV shows like Billions, Halt and Catch Fire, and Mr. Robot. Tell me first about how you got involved in this project. Rada and I met at the 2017 Sundance Directors Labs. The Sundance Labs are sort of like an incubator for uh, a lot of indie filmmakers. I mean, they, they have an incredible history of alumni from Paul Thomas Anderson to Quentin Tarantino and more recently Ryan Coogler and, and lots of, you know, David Lowry, who I've worked with. A lot of really impressive filmmakers have come through there. What the Directors Labs is specifically is an opportunity for emerging filmmakers to come out and test their approach. Generally, they've been vetted through these uh, screenwriters labs. They have a script that Sundance has endorsed and has helped develop. I think as a rule, none of them have ever made a feature film before. And so it's an opportunity for them to try out their ideas in an environment in a simulated production environment. So what they do is they bring out uh, cinematographers, they bring out editors, they bring out script supervisors, production designers, and they replicate the production environment in a way so that these filmmakers can try to, you know, see if their ideas will translate on screen and then talk about it with a cadre of really established creative advisors through the labs. And so you're sitting in the room with Ed Harris and Robert Redford and legendary screenwriters and cinematographers and directors. And it's an incredibly sort of intimidating experience. It's sort of like a film camp in a way. You're all sequestered alone at the Sundance Resort, but it's a very surreal experience to be sitting there getting notes from these people. Rada was a fellow there, and I was asked to come out and be her editor. And we had never met before. We were just sort of paired together by the Sundance Institute, and we just kind of hit it off. I really loved her approach. I really loved her humor. I really loved her sense of timing and sense of, like, film history. And I just really wanted to be involved with the project. And then through our collaboration, working together, trying out her ideas at the labs, she decided that she liked me enough that she wanted to have me come do the thing for real. So fast forward a couple more years and she calls me up and says like, hey Rob, why don't you come do the movie? So very lucky, really honored to be a part of it. That's great. So this was her first film and wrote, starred and directed, correct? Is that a tricky road to walk when you've got all three of those things and you're the editor who is also analyzing kind of all three. <laughs> well, you have to start from the place where not only is she the writer, director, star, but it's also an incredibly personal story to her. You know, I sort of say semi-autobiographical. There are a lot of moments in her life that are just sort of like plucked out and adapted for the for the film. 
as it is with every director editor relationship, but specifically here, you really have to trust that this person knows their own story. She had a personal attachment to everything that she had written down. And so I think it was just important to try to talk to her about what was the best version of the story that she was trying to tell. And she has such a smart mind for story that I think it was really easy to talk to her about what her intention was as a writer. You know, in some ways it simplified the process because the buck stops with one person. There's not a worry of balancing any sort of relationship that's happening between all the creative forces. She was the creative force. So if I could win her over to my idea, that was sort of the end of it. And so it became like a really fun collaboration and it really just sort of started and ended with getting to know her and trying to help bring out exactly what she had seen in her mind and what she had been living with for long enough. But that idea of a story that is so personal and so rooted in one person, I think is fraught with the danger of really her taking things very personally that mm -hmm. another director might not, you know, you, you complain about, Oh, you know, this whole scene could go. Yeah. Some directors would go. Yeah, no. Yeah. I think that yeah, let's just kill this scene. But for her, it's like, that's my life. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. And, and we had discussions like that, that weren't dissimilar. You know, we, we talked a lot about some of the things that were really personal to her. And I think we experimented with a lot of options and, at the end of the day, I think where we landed was that Rada really felt empowered to tell the story that was most important to her. And I think one of the things that I've learned over the course of my still young but somewhat experienced editing career is that you have to give over some of the authority to what the director really wants to see on screen. The answer can't always be what is the most concise way to tell the story. The answer can't always be what is the quickest way into and out of this scene. Like I as an editor can always turn my mind towards how do we pace things up? How do we move things faster? How do we collapse scenes into each other? How do we turn this sequence that's playing long into a montage? You know, I can always go there in my brain, but if I go that way, sure, it might get the movie to an hour and 40 minutes, but what have I lost along the way? She really wanted to make sure that she showed all the sides of her life experience. And I think through the process of screening the film for different kinds of people, there were a lot of things that I, with my background, thought were superfluous or unnecessary or, you know, slowing things down. And then those ended up being the things that people held on to the most. And those ended up being the things that had the most emotional resonance going through the story, you might be violating your own rules in the process, but if it's ultimately in service of the film, it's for the best. I think one of the brilliant things about cinema is that you can learn so much about other people's lives. I think Roger Ebert called it the empathy machine, right? I can offer my own perspective as an audience member, which I, I guess Rada found valuable, but it's important to understand your own limitations in that. And I don't think that that means that I can't help her tell her story. I just think that we need to have an understanding about where I'm coming from and where she's coming from and, you know, realize that your normal editing instincts don't always apply. I think so far the reception of the film, the, the way people have talked about the way it speaks to them, I think has proven out that approach. 
I want to talk a little bit about technique and some choices that were made. The whole film is black and white, but the whole film is not black and white, correct? We found it necessary to shoot on color film for a few select moments. Those scenes were written into the script as color. Those moments where you see Rada's mind's eye, the, the representation of the play. She saw those scenes as being in color from the very beginning because the way she sees it, she wants to see the world in black and white. But then when we break from the world into Rada's subjective perspective, this representation of what she sees of the play, that's in color. And so she liked that as a break visually. We also found it necessary to shoot a little bit in color, to shoot on color stock, because black and white 35 millimeter film is actually pretty slow. It hasn't really evolved. When I say slow... Mm, it, ISO. Yeah, yeah, the ISO is pretty slow, so it's hard to expose at night. And in our budget, we didn't really have the capability to go in like light whole city streets in the middle of the night so we had to shoot on color stock for some night exteriors so that we could get the exposure that we were looking for without needing to light up whole city blocks in new york city which uh is not inexpensive you know and that gave us the chance to experiment with things like the dip to color at the end of the film where we sort of dissolve to the color frame which was something we found in post something that wasn't written in but something that rada really grew attached to as we played with the idea one of the other color places is the high school prom photo of, of her <laughs> and her boyfriend right yeah 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 her her and her yeah her and her boyfriend that is Archie's real prom photograph. That's P Peter Kim, the actor's real prom <laughs> photograph that we that we photoshopped Rada's face into. It was one of those things in the way that we are stealing life to integrate it into this art. Like that's his real photograph. You know, the pictures of Rada's parents are her real parents. All the images we feature that we flash to, you know, periodically over the course of the film are her mom's real artwork, her dad's real album covers like those kinds of things and that was like a really fun thing to play with something else that i noticed that i really liked was a rhythmic sense of not everything being at the same pace there were long scenes on a single shot but then there's also very fast-paced scenes what was fun, just speaking to the scenes that were done sort of in single shots, like on the park bench that you talk about, that was one of the first scenes they shot. I actually think it was the first scene they shot. And I knew Rada's approach because we had worked together at the labs and I knew she liked long takes, but it was definitely something to come back and be like, you get five takes from one angle and then there's an obvious cut point and then there are five takes from the other angle as they sit down on the bench and it's just like just pick one you know what i mean and so it was really fun to play with that but i think you can manufacture a lot of charisma and you can manufacture a lot of chemistry between your characters with an editing style but in a way that can sometimes feel false or or make it feel like you're covering up for something and Rada really loves theater she comes from a theater background and so a lot of times she really wanted to present some of the true relationship moments in single shots so that the audience could really just pay attention to the drama and the dialogue. But then she's also really influenced by hip-hop music videos and a lot of other different kinds of films and so we really liked to try the different styles out and experiment with them so we're talking about the kids in the classroom like the first scene where the two girls get into a fight that was fun because they shot the hell out of that scene on the one hand i 
could find times to just sort of sit in frames and really enjoy the drama of it. I also got a chance to really like flex my muscles and try to find the, the most high energy way to really amplify some moments. The Queens of the Ring scene, which is another scene which was they covered the hell out of from a lot of different perspectives. They shot inside the ring, they shot outside the ring, they shot the reverse on Rada and D from inside the ring, they shot behind them, looking up, you know, they shot all these different ways to approach it. And I think it was just about creating some sort of visual dynamism through the film so that you didn't necessarily walk into any scene knowing what the approach might be. So do you feel that through editing you can foreshadow for the audience and that's what you were trying to keep from happening? We, we did find times to help the audience anticipate certain visual moments, but I think what we always wanted to do is just never spend too much time doing anything, taking any one approach. We have moments with long takes up against other moments with long takes, but we tried to like insert quick little montage moments of city streets, something like that, to inject a little energy and music into the movie. But I think it kind of just became instinctual after a while, so I don't know that we ever really approached it with like, okay, at this point we need to be cutting fast, and at this point we need to be cutting slow. It all reflected on what the dailies said to us, and then once I got it back, it was just about trying what I thought was the best approach for the scene, and then once we saw it all up against each other, it was helping smooth the transitions into or out of that visual style into the next. I was remembering one of those montages of kind of like moments or visuals of New York with like some trees in the middle of a parkway or something. T tell me about adding those, deciding why you needed them, and what was the value of placing those? You know, it's always tough because my instinct is always like, how do we keep the story moving? So in a way, you're finding an opportunity to like linger with these sort of cityscapes. And I think if we had especially dropped the audience into a pretty dialogue heavy scene or a scene where their audience is taking in a lot of information about something that's happening with Rod and her character, we wanted to give them a chance to breathe and to catch up to everything we just thrown at them because we're we're running a lot of narratives concurrently you know we have her theater story and the story of her play we have her journey as a rapper we have her relationship with the students and so we're always sort of bouncing around narratively and trying to keep the balance there and so we didn't want to just steamroll into another story without giving the audience a chance to take a moment, take a breath, and reflect on the things that we had shown them. Plus, the movie itself is a love letter to New York for Rada, and it's also about showing parts of New York that don't really get dramatized on screen in beautiful 35 millimeter black and white. So they are New York cityscapes, but they are Harlem cityscapes and they are Brownsville cityscapes and they are parts of New York that aren't like Midtown, Times Square, Greenwich Village, all these parts of New York that have been shot by other white men, honestly. Like, you know, Rada wanted to reflect the New York that she saw, but using the cinematic language of her influences. So we wanted to make the city into something of a character in that way. And so uh, that helped us just make sure that we found ways to squeeze that in. And she had done a lot of camera tests and stuff like that, too. So we had camera tests and different film formats dating back, I think, a year or two that we were always pulling from or like going back and digging up something that they had tried to shoot on like 16 millimeter from 2018 and found that and be like, oh, that's the right moment. We had to like cut that in. So we were also mixing a lot of different formats in that moment. And so uh, it was pretty fun. You you mentioned, the you know, the, the play, the rapping, the students, the manager. 
Yeah. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff. Uh, yeah. How much did that change from the script? It didn't differ dramatically. I mean, Rada is such a good writer to begin with. You know, she starts in theater, but then also moved to television, has done a lot of writing for television before she came to making the 40-year-old version. She has a wealth of experience trying to craft a great story in the script. And so, you know, when I read the script initially, I felt like we were telling all the right beats and we were setting things up in the right order and paying things off in the right order. And we did have to play with that structure a little bit, but I think... We were actually pretty lucky that there wasn't really a grenade to be thrown at the story in that way. And that sometimes when you get in and you find out your whole act one is headed in the wrong direction, you know, you have to go in and like completely rethink it once you see what the footage looks like. I didn't really have that problem on this project, which I really feel fortunate for. That's really just a credit to Rada as a writer. That doesn't mean that like within the story, we weren't finding the things that were missing along the way. You know, one example would be her brother, who she goes to see pretty late in the film and the way in which she was sort of avoiding facing the death of her mother uh, and we needed to find a way to dramatize that through the voicemails from her brother that periodically appear throughout the film and that was something we found in post because we found that by the time we got to her mom's apartment the audience had not really been tracking that. I mean, of course, she had been talking about it a little bit, but it wasn't quite enough. So we were just trying to find little ways to like sprinkle the stories that we were staying away from. We wanted to find a way to like sprinkle in just enough to make you remember that it was out there. Is there any difference in cutting strictly black and white? I talked to uh, Kirk Baxter about this with Mank. Is, yeah. <laughs> is yeah. it different? I'm very jealous of their operation that they're running over there. I don't know that I approached uh, the film really any differently once I saw the final footage. The difference, though, that I would draw between the operation that Kirk Baxter and Fincher and their whole operation is running over there is that because they're shooting in a digital format, they are able to turn around dailies in a short amount of time. Our dailies process was incredibly involved and incredibly complicated. And most of the time, I wasn't actually seeing the film dailies in true black and white until about a week after that footage had been shot. So I did my entire assembly of the film from what I've been calling tap dailies, which is that they were recording off the DP's viewfinder to these ProRes proxy files, which are incredibly grainy and incredibly soft. And they have these burned in 240 matte lines into them. They look like garbage, but they're technically in color because it's just like whatever the DP is seeing himself. So those would be the dailies that we were receiving the next day. So I had to judge performance. I had to judge focus, camera, everything from watching these incredibly garbage images while the film was being shot in New York and then shipped to Baltimore for processing and then shipped back to New York to be scanned and then brought over to the post facility to be sunk up. And so by the time that it all finished, they would have wrapped a location three or four days ago. And I never really got the chance to see the way the footage looked until basically it was too late. I never looked at it any differently once I saw the footage, then I looked at color. But as a logistical perspective, cutting black and white 35 millimeter negative is incredibly complicated. And 
your ability to help the creative decisions that are being made on set are incredibly hard because that's expensive. It's hard to go back and reprocess anything. It's hard to go back and reshoot anything. It's always hard, but it's like gets even harder once you're talking about a film format that is not widely used anymore. But I would do it again, 100%. It's so gorgeous that I, I think that it's such an amazing format. I would, I, I would love to do it all over again. I'm assuming you were editing in New York, and were you actually on set, near set? Did you have a little uh, suite someplace? Yeah, we were set up at a facility in the West Village called Goldcrest Post. Goldcrest helped us with every step of post-production from sound to grading to dailies. They gave us uh, great editorial facilities. They are a really tight ship and really gave us a tremendous amount of support. Like, I don't know that we would have been able to have such a seamless finish if it weren't for them and the way that their team is so integrated. And one of the other things that makes that really valuable is that we didn't wrap shooting until after Labor Day. And we definitely submitted to Sundance late. I can't remember the exact date that we sent in, but I think it was sometime in October. So we probably sent a cut to Sundance week four or five of the director's cut, which is in October. And then we have to finish, lock, rescan the entire film at 4K and grade it and mix it and deliver it for Sundance, which was in late January. And so if we didn't have a facility that could provide all of those resources to us, then I think we would have had a much more stressful finishing process. I mean, it was already stressful enough as it was, but yeah, it was a, we got a great amount of support from them. Do you know enough about the technical side of it to know how you relinked or were able to use those tap dailies to the final scans? That must've been crazy. It was not the most fun process, but, you know, I had a great assistant editor, Sam Salvadon, who essentially had to go in and overcut the entire film from scratch, you know, just to get into the weeds. Our tap dailies were coming back generally time of day, time code, that it was being read off the sound files because the sound could feed into the tap. And so we were getting synced sound, which was great. But those tap dailies might line up essentially with the sound time code that we were getting back from our synced film dailies through the Goldcrest dailies pipeline. However, the picture time code wouldn't reflect anything because they were putting it all on film rolls. And so the time code that we were getting for our film rolls was reflected of the, the film rolls themselves and had nothing to do with when it was shot. So we could do our best. I mean, sometimes things would come in, you know, within a few frames and you could kind of guesstimate it if you like AB'd the, the audio time code from the film time codes with the tap dailies. But generally speaking, to answer your question, there's no button to press. You literally have to go in and eye match it. And I have learned from my time as an assistant editor, from my time hearing from like much more established editors to try like, try different versions, you know, open with a wide, try a version that opens with the close, you know, see how it goes, experiment. And so I was producing multiple versions of these tap daily scenes. And then I would give them to Sam and be like, yeah, Sam, can you overcut five versions of that scene? And for something that was even crazier, like Queens of the Ring, which was shot in a night, but had so much footage, it was just crazy because the tap dailies are so like low resolution you can see your film dailies come back and all of a sudden you can see everything and it's like oh i couldn't see the the crowd outside of the ring when i cut the tap dailies but now i can see their faces is that good you know you kind of have to 
all of a sudden reevaluate your whole editorial approach definitely added to a stressful and scary process through, the, through cutting the film. But thankfully, you know, we had a great team. Sam and I just hit it as hard as possible. I'm really grateful that from my time working as an assistant that I have enough of a technical understanding of how things work to realize when there aren't going to be solutions or what there, when there are going to be solutions. And so we, um, we just kind of had to push through. Talk to me about music and temping and how that affected the picture cut and where that stuff came from. There's sort of three elements to the music in the film, right? So there is the songs that Rada is performing. There's our needle drop songs, our source cues, which are like Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, like things from the early 90s golden era of hip hop that we're pulling from that we wanted to drop into. And then there's also the score, which Courtney Bryan did, which is pulling songs from albums that she's recorded. There were two songs called out for in the script which is the sequence of Rada walking through Harlem. There's this beautiful jazz tune by Courtney that she called out. So I knew that that was going to go in there. Then there was also the R&B slow jam that hits when Rada and Dee finally uh, consummate their relationship to great effect, to great hilarity in the film. That's just about finding the right point to cut hard into the bedroom. Speaking to the rest of the score, Rada didn't really have any intention, but this beautiful jazz that Courtney had composed just felt right in a lot of ways for the classic New York story that Rada was trying to tell. And I went through the albums that she'd recorded. And when I first showed Rada my um, editor's cut, I had tempt a lot of the moments where I thought, well, maybe this is a place for some score. Like maybe this is a place to sort of slow things down. This isn't quite right for hip hop. This is about another side of Rada's brain. So we laid in the score there and I don't remember exactly how many we kept, but I would say, you know, maybe six at most. So the score that works through the film were compositions by this composer, Cordy Bryant. So those all stuck because it just like, it just felt right. Now, when it came to laying in the hip hop, it was a little bit more fun. We had a great music supervisor, Guy Rute, who has a ton of experience working with early New York hip hop. And he is the guy who helped get Rada the beats for the songs that she was going to perform in the song and the, all the different beats that Dee was going to play for her, to play for other people. So when we got to editorial, he just kind of like dumped a bunch of these cues on me. I and mean, then I knew which one poverty porn was but I didn't necessarily know where all the other ones were going to get. And so we spent some time just trying to like figure out like what's the mood that this cue is telling me. And okay, well that's, you know, I need something light and energetic. So let's, here's what, here's what I got. And then, you know, that wasn't right everywhere too. To some extent, we really wanted to wear our influences on our sleeve. And so that, really led us to opening the film with A Tribe Called Quest, which is the cue that as she's running to the bus and traveling and during the opening credit sequence until she gets to the school. Like, I love that song. I the Tribe Called Quest is one of my favorite groups. Rada's a little bit older than me, but not much. So I do remember seeing them on MTV and De La Soul and like all those musical influences too had a huge effect on me. And so being able to find those in the film and like find the right ways to communicate sort of where we were coming from and the types of things you heard out there in the world was also like really fun and we were able to clear a bunch of them which is like the icing on the cake i can't believe that some of those cues are in the movie because like to me that's just being able to put that in the movie is like amazing yeah i just did a whole project we were trying to get stuff cleared and i had such great high hopes and none of it got cleared i'm like oh 
just kills you. This is a hot take, but there should be an Oscar for music supervision <laughs> because sometimes the songs just work and the amount of energy that go into clearing them and then you've you got to dig up old masters and like it's just the amount of work that goes into that and also like the amount of taste and execution that is required from a good music supervisor i think they're worth their weight in gold was there a coltrane track there wasn't a coltrane track but courtney's music is very inspired by coltrane and we wanted to evoke that in the film because that's the other side of it we talked a lot about the two sides of what rada is feeling you know we talked about her head and her heart her theater career and her hip-hop career and we talked about her head being her theater career and like this is what i should be doing and we talked about her heart being her hip-hop career and screw everybody else i'm gonna do the thing that's inspiring me and rada's background her father was a jazz musician like he used to play with sunrod so she heard a lot of jazz in the house but then when she was growing up you know hip-hop was in the air and so those two forces like pushed against each other it was about like finding that balance in there which is um you know something we always wanted to be playing with you know we want you to think it's coltrane we also want to be able to find the best hip-hop cues the best hip-hop influences what did you edit on were you on avid or were you on premiere we cut in avid i try to be as platform agnostic as possible a lot of my assistant work was through avid and so i did sort of came up through the traditional avid assistant editor pipeline but I think Premiere is a great tool. I've also been recently kicking the tires, cutting in Resolve and cutting in Final Cut X. And depending on the project, I'm trying to just like stay nimble with that. But I do think for a feature film, when you're working with multiple people in a shared environment, Avid is still king of the jungle in that way. And I didn't want to run into anything that I couldn't predict was going to be a problem. So yeah, so that we stuck with Media Composer. We'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with Robert Grigsby Wilson. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by Evercast. It's hard to beat the ease of sitting shoulder to shoulder with the director, cutting together in real time. The Evercast platform gives you that in-person experience no matter where you are. You can securely stream your Avid, Premiere, or any other NLE in 1080p with ultra-low latency. Plus, you can video chat, record, draw on screen, and even make time-stamped notes. No more uploading and downloading files, no more installing special hardware, or sending notes back and forth. Evercast now offers flexible plans to make it more accessible to more creatives. And in the month of March, Art of the Cut listeners can save $50 off their first subscription by heading to evercast.us slash AOTC. That's www.evercast.us slash AOTC. And now back to my conversation with Robert Grigsby Wilson. You mentioned the kind of the cage match, a rap battle with a ton of material. Do you have to have a different approach for that than for a scene that's maybe a, a much simpler dialogue scene? You know, I think that scene is, is really interesting because there's a few things going on. Obviously, there's like a performance taking place and then there's the crowd reaction to it. Even though they're speaking a cappella, they are actually speaking in rhythm. And so it's also really important to have something of an understanding of cadence and tempo. Like I've played in bands for years. And so I think it's really important when it comes to editing a scene like that. The pacing on a whole other level besides just the performance of it, you know, you could pick performance, but 
you also need to find the thing that makes the entire rap battle flow through each other. So those things are all really important to pay attention to. I think when it comes to cutting performance, what I try to do is just start with the performance and try to find the places that can fit together without needing to cut away. I think these women are so good on the fly, off the cuff, that cutting too much almost leads the audience to question whether what they're seeing is real. I really wanted to sit in as many moments as possible and try to find the right camera angle. Now, we had to fight a lot of things like extras and camera lighting and angles and what's the what's the best thing that's happening because the, the scene is so stylistically lit. I think Eric Bronco did an amazing job in general in the film, but specifically with that scene. And so we had to find the right way to present the best performance. But then once we put it all together, I think the full assembly of the scene was like 11 minutes long, which is just not realistic when it comes to the film, especially when it comes to sort of like back half of the second act. She's going off on this date. Her relationship with Dee isn't necessarily related to either what's happening with her head or her heart. So we're a little like, we're kind of going off on a journey right now, but it was so important and it was so great. And it was such an amazing set piece. We wanted to have as much of it as possible. So then we started to find ways to pull little bits of time out and cut around it a little bit. And I do think we ended up truncating their performances just a little bit. But again, that's where the, the knowledge of cadence and timing and tempo come in as well, because you have to find ways to craft their lyrics together so that it all feels seamless. And then that creates a whole other host of problems because you're trying to match everything, right? You're trying to match body position and, and editing style. And are we inside of the ring? Are we outside the ring? And who are we trying to look at at this moment? And ultimately, the scene is about Rada seeing herself on that stage and gaining confidence from that. And it's also about her seeing another world that Dee is trying to give her. And it's about solidifying their relationship and this guy who she was initially skeptical about, this guy who she didn't necessarily want to see, this guy who she thought was like shunning her, who is really trying to show his affection for her. I mean, she spent a lot of time talking about the way that D doesn't emote. He's not going to come out and say, I love you. He's going to say, why don't you get in the car with me and we'll go to this thing. And then that's going to be it. So we had to find the right moments of him in that scene and show their connection all while building around this incredible rap battle performance because the real narrative value to the scene is the relationship that's being formed between them over the course of the performance, you know? And I wasn't totally convinced that it was there. And then we started having some feedback screenings and Rada invited a lot of her friends. And I just remember vividly like sitting in the back of the room and all of a sudden like there'd be a look from D and all the women in the room would be like, oh, like they could, they, you could feel this like audible excitement <laughs> and everyone was getting so interested in their relationship. And I was like, oh man, it's, it's, it's working. Like I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. So it was really, that was really fun. It was maybe my favorite scene to cut in the film. Do you think they're different muscles cutting feature films, narrative feature films and cutting documentary? How are the two different? That's a good question. There are different muscles. They're certainly related. And I think that narrative editing practice can really help you as a documentary editor. And I think the documentary editing experience can really help you as a narrative editor. And so I think that they are related and they affect each other, but they're not necessarily the same discipline. I really see documentary editing as like black belt editing. That's to me you're given a pile of footage without even necessarily a story, without even necessarily knowing 
if there is a story there. And you have to find the right moments and put them together in the right order to evoke this emotional response from your audience. You're literally writing the film as you're cutting it together. You know, narrative editing, you're given a roadmap, which makes the first step a little bit easier. Now, look, there's a whole other host of challenges that come into narrative filmmaking. I don't mean to say that, you know, narrative editors aren't equally as incredible, but I see the amount of work that has to go into making a documentary really work and always being impressed by the people who do it really, really well. And like, I'm just really glad every time I can get my hands dirty with a documentary, but I'm always reminded that like, oh yeah, this thing that you, this scene that you built and the way that this story is being told in this moment, well, if you had a different editor in here, you could end up with an entirely different scene where they don't use a single frame of the same thing and then communicate a totally different emotion depending on the way you cut it. But I do think being able to tell story in brief moments and through mood and tone is something that my narrative experience has really informed my documentary experience and understanding that you don't always need to watch a talking head to have someone explain what's going on in the story, that your audience can really intuit things in a more cinematic language. And that, you know, has really informed my documentary editing through my narrative experience. You've got something at South by Southwest coming up. Tell me about that and what are some lessons that you either took from this project, a 40-year-old version into that, or that you're going to take from this to bring into your next project? So I was lucky enough here in quarantine to get signed up to cut a film called Alone Together, which is about Charlie XCX, who is a pop star. She recorded an album herself in quarantine. It's been widely heralded as like, you know, one of the best albums of the year. It's got a lot of great jams. It's about her experience in quarantine. And I think what's really interesting about it is that she shot it all herself. She and her business managers and her boyfriend shot the entire thing themselves inside their house. And it's about, you know, a pop star making an album, but it's also really about 28 year old woman being stuck in her house with her boyfriend who was up until that point, a long distance boyfriend and her two friends who happen to be her business managers, but are also her friends because they shot it all themselves and they're not professional filmmakers. It is a little verite. It's a little DIY. It's a little rugged. It's a little lo-fi and that makes it really fun and it makes it feel really honest. I think that really comes through in the film and I'm really proud of it because South By asked it to be the closing night film at the festival. So the thing that is really true for me about documentary is that I feel like people too often get hung up on like what, how good does your footage look? But I was always just like, well, if the emotion is there, the audience will feel it. It doesn't matter what the framing is like as long as you're communicating the real narrative relevance, the real emotional importance of what we're watching. Emotional importance is the most important thing whenever you're trying to tell a story. That is a lesson that I'm really looking forward to carrying forward. And also just the idea that you can wholly reinvent a scene in the editing process and documentary a lot more easily than you can do it with a narrative film. The idea that you can just throw a grenade at something and be like, you know what, let's just make this scene into something different. What is the point of this scene? Like finding the most elegant, fluid ways to uh, tell your story. I think that that translates really well in the documentary and, and, and I hope people like the movie. And what was the structure of that film and how did you come to that structure? Well, we had a built-in structure in the way that the movie starts with her deciding to make the album and the movie ends with her paying it off. Through the course of it, she ran into a lot of obstacles. She is something of a workaholic and that created a lot of peaks and valleys in terms of emotional successes, musical successes. 
but then also valleys where, you know, something's not working. She could get frustrated. I mean, it's the typical creative experience. Two of my favorite films are Stop Making Sense and The Last Waltz. So being able to watch a song start from something she's humming to herself and then you add in a little musical beat and then like watch it kind of evolve and then she scratches out the lyrics because they're not quite right and she rewrites them and then she sings it again. Like watching that sort of flower, it's really fun. Talk to me about editing in quarantine and editing remotely. And how did that work out with this documentary project? Yeah, no, we haven't been together. Actually, the directors are in Los Angeles. I've done a lot of different projects over quarantine, all in different collaborative arrangements with different editing services and different editing platforms, trying out different remote pieces of software. It's different than being in the room with someone, but I do find that often my collaborative relationships with directors involve having a lot of conversations, watching a lot of cuts, occasionally working through footage together in the effort of like trying to keep them from watching the sausage get made. It's an effort to let me experiment with different approaches and try and come up with different proposals. And it takes something of the pressure to perform. One of the ways that Rada and I worked a lot is that, you know, she would come in, we would watch things, we would talk about them, and then she would go get a coffee or go get lunch. And I would try to fix the thing that she wanted to work on. It's not the same as being in the room together. Although I've been surprised about how close to that experience you can get. I've worked on another project. I just worked on a pilot for HBO Max. The director, who is an editor himself, was sitting with me the whole time and we're spending hours together on Google Meet and talking through the cut. Ultimately, what makes it really hard and what you're losing is the things that are happening in between your edit sessions that now your collaborative meetings are more focused. And that's great. I don't feel like the the focus is any less because you happen to be sitting in front of your computer in your house than it is like if you're at a facility somewhere. However, I do really feel the normal evolution of a creative relationship that happens like when you decide to go get lunch or when you need 15 minutes to reboot the system and like the conversation that happen from that, getting to know the person, getting to know the person as a person, coming up with ideas, just sort of spitballing. The, the sort of idle time that comes along from the process of making a film is lost. You can still make a movie without it, but I think often that can create new relationships or even just new ideas. You can just be talking about some movie that you just saw because you're walking down the street going to get lunch and then all of a sudden like, oh, I've got it. That just reminded me, you know, but if you hadn't been having that conversation, you wouldn't necessarily pull it together. Yeah, well, if you were in a band, you know, I mean, we could all play our individual tracks and put them in Pro Tools and come up with a record, but it's not the same as sitting in a room with somebody. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a certain magic that happens when you're just allowed to sit there and tinker. And with everything being remote, you lose some of that. I think it's brought into focus the work-life balance for a lot of editors. The ability to be able to like log off for an hour and go deal with something that is also important to your life and finding the space in your life to deal with the other things that are happening and then come back to it. It's not the same, but I do think that there's value in it. And I think, you know, I've certainly learned to balance things a little bit more. And I think that collaborative relationships will be better for it. And like my mental health may be better for it ultimately. (laughs) On that note, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, it was great having you on Art of the Cut. 
That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Robert Grigsby Wilson. And also, thanks to Dylan Giovanetto, who edited this episode using Adobe Audition. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.